your spirit, that you would be at work in us, opening our minds and our hearts to know and to receive you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do sit down. John, they're in teams. They're creating mascots and they've eaten a lot of pizza. They're all yours. <laughs> um, John 21 is what you need. Page 1090. If you didn't get a Bible on the way, and you may want to go and get one, but I'm going to read it for you. Um, they're actually not at the back, Emma. I'm really sorry. I, oh, there are some. That was just, just sorry. They've mostly moved to by the current entrance, if you see what I mean. But there are some at the back. Sorry. I didn't want you to work all the way back and find they'd gone. Um, I should have said, by the way, that we are, whisper it quietly and don't mention it to anybody, um, slightly ahead of schedule on the building. I know that really shouldn't say that sort of thing, because it's inevitably going to be a really bad week. Uh, but, um, no, it's going well. Um, and uh, next thing that's going to happen is the, uh, they'll carry on digging down the side here, and that wall will disappear, and um, the, the final bits of edging are going to get put in. Um, and then the bricks will arrive in a couple of weeks' time, and they'll start building the disabled access ramp and um, those sorts of things. And uh, we are uh, uh, still awaiting a final bit of planning permission on the rest of the project, which is down the back side of the building. Um, but we have now finally, finally agreed that, um, the glass doors and who's going to be doing those. And I don't know whether there's any sense of time scale on that. I'm looking at Charles, because if anybody knows, he will. Three or four weeks. That would be great. It'd be nice to get those done. I don't think they're going to... No, they're not going to be done in time for our pair of weddings, sadly. Uh, but they will be done quite soon after. So three or four weeks' time, we should have uh, the glass doors in. And around about the same time, it could be just about three or four weeks, um, the, the new paving goes in. And we may actually, within a month, be able to start using new doors, new entrances, everything. It'd be great. So I'm very excited about that. As I say, it's only taken the three years. Right, so page 1090... Uh, John, John 21, and I'm going to read from verse 15 of John 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of uh, um, John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. This comes as one of those times when Jesus meets with his disciples after he's been raised from the dead. And... Um, on the face of it, you would imagine that this would be a moment, one of those moments of great joy for Peter. He's been one of those who's been devastated by Jesus' death. He's been one of those who went, one of the few that went to the tomb and saw that it was empty. He was there in the upper room when Jesus appeared to the disciples. And just before this little bit that I've read, um, Peter's been out in, back in the fishing boats doing their fishing. Jesus has come and has said to them, have you caught anything? And they've said no. And he said, put the 
nets out on the other side and amazingly there's a huge shoal of fish and they're pulling them in and, and, and Peter's the one that leaps into the water and swims into Jesus and, and seems delighted to see him. And yet, you've got to assume that there was a certain amount, um, dare I say it, of awkwardness about this meeting. In fact, I suspect far more than that. Because if you play the tape back, you find that Peter had this um, huge cloud hanging over him. Because Peter had been absolutely confident with Jesus that he was going to be the one who, unlike all the rest, would stick with his master and his friend through thick and thin. As far as we can tell reading the Gospels, Peter, James and John were the three closest confidants of Jesus. They're the ones who went up onto the, the mount for, for the transfiguration. They're the ones who are often sort of huddled around Jesus having a little conversation. They were his closest friends. And when it comes to um, Jesus telling his friends about his forthcoming death and resurrection, though they don't hear the second bit, Peter says to him, look, even if everybody else runs away, even if everybody else uh, you know, leaves you, I'm going to stick with you. In other words, I, you know, I love you more than these. That's what he's promised him. And do you remember that Jesus says to him, Peter, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. And then we remember those terrible events as Jesus is being tried and is on his way to be tortured and then crucified. There's Peter, simply in the courtyard amongst some of the servants, not even being, uh, you know, hassled by soldiers or threatened with arrest. And somebody simply asks him, oh, do you know that Jesus? You sound like you're from around where he comes from. He says, no, never heard of him. And twice more he's pursued. You must know Jesus. Everybody's heard of Jesus. Nope, never heard of him. Go on, you're one of the, aren't you one of his friends? I tell you, I will swear on anything you like, I've never heard of him. And at that moment, the cock crows. And worse than that, Jesus sees him and has heard. Now, when Jesus dies, Peter will be devastated. But I wonder how Peter felt the first time he saw Jesus alive. I've never really thought about this, this until this week. I've always assumed that all the disciples would be absolutely ecstatic, overjoyed, complete unalloyed joy at seeing the risen Jesus. But what if you're Peter? I, I, I hope none of us have been in quite such a, a terrible situation as Peter put himself into, but we all know that feeling when we have messed up with somebody and what it's going to be like the next time we see them. Think of Peter. Here is Jesus risen from the dead, and the last time he saw Jesus alive was seconds after he denied him, seconds after he turned his back, seconds after he said, I have no idea who he is, he's on his own. I wonder how he felt. Uh, we had uh, the great fun of uh, getting to go and see the theatre production last night of um, the, the Railway Children, uh, the, the famous E. Nesbitt book that most people know better as the film with Jenny Agutta and Bernard Cribbins and so on in, which I'm not allowed to watch with my kids anymore because I cry too much. Um, and uh, they, they hate that. So um, anyway, we won't even go down that route. But it's, if you get the chance, it's a stunning stage adaptation. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, and the, the children are spellbound. 
actually what I mean is the adults are as spellbound as the children. It is wonderful. Um, and I saw it about three years ago when it was at Waterloo. I took Stephen, and this last night we took um, Hannah as well as Stephen. That's at King's Cross now. There's a bit of it that I'd sort of forgotten, because it's a long time since I've seen the film, because I'm not allowed to watch it anymore. And um, I, I don't know whether you know it, but it's a, it's a story set back in the 1880s about a group of children who end up in, in the countryside uh, for reasons I won't go into if you don't know the story. Uh, but they become um, very, very poor, and they don't even have enough money to sort of buy enough coal to light a fire. And Peter, who's the sort of middle child, who I'm guessing is sort of the 10 or 11-year-old, um, has spotted a big pile of coal down in the station. And uh, he decides to go mining, as he calls it. And uh, he's convinced himself that it's not stealing, because there's just this pile of coal. And if he takes it from the middle, not the edge, then it's mining. That's what he's convinced. I'd forgotten all of that. And he's caught, red-handed, black-handed, I suppose, in the middle of the night by Perks. And he and his sisters are in huge trouble. And, um, and, uh, and amongst the children in the audience who didn't know the story, they were, you could tell there was a real sense of, <gasps> you know, what's going to happen? And Perks, who's a great character, actually, in the story, um, particularly in the film, because it's Bernard Cribbins, um, basically, you know, hauls them into the waiting room, gives them a talking to, and then sends them on their way. And they're like, what, are you not going to send for the police? And he said, no, I never want to see or hear of you doing anything like this ever again on your way. He forgives them. But the bit I'd forgotten completely is that a little bit later, I think it's um, Bobby's birthday, Roberta's birthday. At the end, Perks hangs around and Peter sort of sidles off. And Perks, up to that point, has been a real sort of good mate of theirs. They, he's really sort of looked after these three children and, and they've got to know him really quite well. He goes, are you not talking to me anymore? And Peter looks a bit sort of bashful and shamefaced and he says, well, I, I didn't think you'd want to. In other words, Peter did what you and I always do, which is, which is when it comes to a friendship or a relationship, it's one thing to be told, I forgive you. It's another thing to imagine the friendship can ever be okay again. And I think that's the way that we are generally with God, and it's certainly the way that we generally handle forgiveness and relationships. There is a difference, we know, between somebody who says, I forgive you, because we know that's what you're meant to do, and God saying to us as well, I forgive you, because that's what God's meant to do, and really believing that friendship can ever be right. And I'm absolutely convinced that Peter, seeing Jesus, would have had that mixture. He knew that Jesus was somebody who came to speak about and to do forgiveness. But there's no way that Peter wasn't sitting there absolutely churning inside, thinking, but what does he think of me? I've completely let him down. And I want to suggest that as we read this story together, just, uh, just for a few minutes, you get a, a shape of what true forgiveness, by which I mean forgiveness that actually mends, properly mends and restores friendship, actually looks like. And then we find that that's the forgiveness that God offers to us. And the first thing of this shape of forgiveness is the most surprising of all, and it's the one I'll spend a little bit the longest on. And it's that for true forgiveness involves or starts with accusation. True forgiveness starts with accusation. If you're going to properly forgive somebody, the last thing you can do is tiptoe around the edge and never mention what's been done. 
which of course is exactly what mostly we do, especially if you're British, that tends to be the approach to these things. Actually, let's just pretend it never happened, it'll go away. But of course it never does. And you can't forgive somebody without accusing them. In fact, to forgive somebody is an accusation in itself. And if I walked up to Charles in front of everybody and said, Charles, I just feel it's really important to say in front of you know, all our friends here, I do forgive you. What are you all thinking? Yeah, absolutely, what's he done? Yeah, what have you done? <laughs> now, actually, I've got nothing to forgive Charles for. He's done me no harm whatsoever. But, but you know, actually, do you, do you see how tr- forgiveness is an accusation? To say, I forgive you, is first to say, you've done something wrong to me. Uh, my my mum, my many, many, many years ago in a different church, and not, not to do with anybody here, uh, was once, um, I was going to say accosted, that's a bit strong, but pretty nearly accosted at the front of church, uh, drinking coffee, you know, afterwards, by a woman she sort of only vaguely knew, who came up to her and said, Penny, I've been praying in the service, Phil, really God's laid something on my heart, I really need to say to you. And my mum's thinking, gosh, that's fantastic, you know, a word from the Lord, uh, an encouragement, a prophecy, something like that. She said, Penny, I just, I need to say to you, I forgive you. Gave her a hug and walked off. Now, my my mum didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I think literally didn't know whether to laugh or cry because she hardly knew this woman. And as far as she was aware, she'd hardly had any contact with her. And certainly, as far as she knew, had done nothing wrong at all. Well, so what did she feel? Well, she didn't feel good about being forgiven. She felt accused. And that's what forgiveness has to start with. And do you see that in the whole shape of this conversation, Jesus is deliberately, because he loves him, accusing Peter. The first way he accuses him is not to call him Peter. It's there in verse 15, Simon, son of John. That's the first time since they met that Jesus has not called him Peter. Why? Well, because he names him Peter because Peter comes from the Greek for rock, Petros. And he says, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Petros or Peter because on you I'm going to build my church. You're going to be the solid rock foundation, the equivalent of getting called Rocky. No, rather better than that. But it, it's, that's what it was. It was a compliment. What does Jesus do now? Simon. Gosh, Peter would have sunk a bit at that point. And then the second thing that he does is that he uses this phrase... Um, Simon, son of John, he doesn't say, do you truly love me? Do you notice what he says? He says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Well, they're on the beach with the rest of the disciples, so that's who it means. And what was it that Peter had promised Jesus? All of these may leave you, not me. Implication? Because I love you more than these. So Jesus comes to him and says, Simon, not Peter, do you truly love me more than these? Simon Peter would have sunk a bit lower. And then, the worst of all, the real kicker, is that he doesn't just ask Peter, Simon, once, do you love me? That would have been enough. Nor twice, but three times. And you notice it's on the third occasion that Simon or Peter was really hurt. Verse 17. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Jesus is reminding him of all three times that he denied him. All three times. He is deliberately rubbing Peter's nose in it. Why? Well, not because Jesus doesn't love him. Not because Jesus is being vindictive. 
not because Jesus wants Simon Peter to feel worse. It's because he cannot receive forgiveness until he has recognised his need to be forgiven. It's impossible. Just like my mum standing in front of church or Charles sitting there looking slightly concerned why I'm forgiving him. You can't receive forgiveness if you don't think you've done anything wrong. It cannot be done. Forgiveness begins with a recognition of guilt. That's why confession is so important. It's not because God enjoys us sort of groveling in the dirt, feeling hopeless about ourselves. It's because until we put ourselves in the place of realising we need his forgiveness, our hands aren't out there. We don't ask. We don't need. That's the first thing, the most important thing. Forgiveness starts with an accusation, starts with a recognition of guilt. Now that's true in our relationships with one another. We are very British sometimes uh, in our dealings with, very over-polite in our dealings with one another. And in good friendships, taking the risk of naming the pain is a really important place to start. It's a risk. It's the same in husband-wife relationships. Actually skirting around things for too long just makes them worse, doesn't make them go away. Actually, sometimes things need to be named and forgiven. Certainly with God. The other two, rather more briefly. If forgiveness begins with an accusation, with recognising the wrong, so that we're in a place to receive them, we then have to ask the question, well, how do we receive this forgiveness? What do I need to do to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers? And what he says to Simon Peter is he doesn't say, right, from now on, I want you to be good. Then you can be forgiven. He doesn't say, from now on, I want you to pray more or to give more or to be a better person. He simply asks him this one question. Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's really simple. The Bible says that the hands with which we receive God's grace are the hands of love. And to love Jesus is, is not an absolute, it's a friendship. So it's a growing thing. And, and actually that faith, that love, starts tinier than a mustard seed. And we pray that it grows through life. But Jesus doesn't say to Simon, do you love me enough? Do you love me enough to be forgiven? He just says, do you love me? The hands with which we receive forgiveness are the hands of love. And of course, if we cannot receive forgiveness, then forgiveness cannot change the friendship. Now, we know that in human relationships, don't we? There, there can be somebody who does you wrong, that you may offer forgiveness, but if that person either doesn't think they need it or res- refuses to believe that you really forgive them or cannot forgive themselves, that friendship is never mended. The relationship is never healed, nor is our relationship with God. God offers, that is no holds barred, freely given, cannot be bought, cannot be lost, grace, forgiveness. But unless we're willing to put out our hands and receive it in love, the friendship isn't mended. And then there's a third and final part to this, which is that forgiveness is never something for its own sake. Forgiveness is meant to restore our friendship with God and then set us to work because that's what we were made for. That's the, the real, um, I can't think of the right way of putting it. It's the sort of icing on the cake of all of this. It's what makes this conversation so remarkable because Jesus doesn't just say to Simon Peter, don't think any more about it, I forgive you. 
He says to Simon, who he refuses at the start of the conversation to call Peter, you've blown it, haven't you? Yes. Do you love me? Can you receive my forgiveness? Yes. Wonderful. Back on your feet, dust yourself down, off you go and serve me again. You're Peter. So I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to care for my sheep. I want you to be my under-shepherd. I want you to do the work that I've come to do. I don't think that we ever really believe we're forgiven until somebody trusts us again, do we? I mean, you know, where friendships and relationships are broken, it's to do with trust in the end. His Jesus trusting the man who let him down. The man who broke his heart. Jesus trusts him again. I think all of us at some point in our Christian lives get to a point, if we've been friends with Jesus for any length of time, where we know ourselves so well and we know that we've let God down in so many different ways that we start to think, well, I'm not trusted anymore. There's no way that God, knowing what he knows, being a bright, you know, intelligent being who knows me through and through, there is no way that God isn't truly fed up, that God isn't just going, well, we'll find somebody else. But this story tells me what the whole Bible says, which is that God already knew the worst there was to nervous, already knew it. Didn't, Jesus didn't learn anything about Simon Peter that he didn't already know when he was betrayed, when he was denied, so it was Judas did the betraying. And yet, he still trusted Simon Peter, and he then trusts him again. And he's going to trust him again, and again, and again, and again. Because that's how forgiveness works. And that's how it works for us. So we're going to come to communion together. And as we do so, we're remembering what Jesus had to do so that that forgiveness was real. Simon Peter's sin could only be forgiven because of that terrible death that Jesus had received on his behalf. And as we come to, for communion, as we put out our hands to receive, why don't you look at your hands and let them represent the love, that little bit of love. It might be the tiniest, tiniest bit, the beginnings of our love for Jesus. And as we receive the bread and the cup, let that stand for the gift of forgiveness that we receive. And as we eat and drink in remembrance of him, we remember that the communion service in most churches, we're not very good at using it here, finishes with the prayer, send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. In other words, don't just forgive me, trust me again to do your work. Can I ask you please if you're able to stand and we'll come to communion together. I feel a long way away from you, so I'm going to bring this forward. Let's have the words for communion up on the screen. It begins the 